Hey, it's great to be with you all. Uh, like I said, my name is Matt Lito. I'm part of the team here at Nova, and today I have the privilege of preaching to you. And we've been in this series on pillars. If you're wondering what these things are on stage, these are, these are representations of pillars. And the idea that we've been looking at is that in the context of our faith, there are certain load-bearing pillars that every single Christian needs to have in place in their life for the structure of their life to be firm for it to be solid, for it to be foundational. And so what we've been doing is we've been looking at these different concepts, these different principles within our Christian faith. We've been looking at generosity and prayer and confession. And today, we're going to be looking at the pillar of worship. The pillar of worship. So if you're taking notes, this message is called the pillar of worship. If you're looking for a subtitle, it's called an offering of praise an offering of praise. So let's look at this together, Acts 16. Now, this passage of scripture that we're about to look at is a glimpse of worship in the New Testament. Paul and Silas, these two New Testament believers, Paul's a little bit more famous than Silas, have been doing ministry and missionary work, spreading the good news of Jesus in in all of these towns. And in this one particular town that they go into, they run into this slave girl who is uh, demonically possessed. She's possessed by a demon. Awesome. Yeah, it is awesome. Here's the thing. Her slave owners have been using this demonic possession because for whatever reason, she can tell the future. She's a fortune teller. And so people have been coming and paying her money to have them, her tell them their future. And these slave owners are taking that money and using her as a cash cow, as a, a method of profit. But when Paul and Silas come into town, the demonic presence in her has to acknowledge the authority of Jesus in them. And so this girl, even though she may, may not even be willing to say this, is following Paul and Silas around, endorsing them, being like, these are messengers of God. Listen to them because they are teaching the way of salvation. And you're like, oh, that seems like a great thing. Even the demons are like, yeah, no, this is legit, right? This fortune teller that's been telling all these people that they trust her. But what ends up happening is that Paul and Silas, maybe, maybe this girl's just really annoying. Maybe she's saying it really loudly or really repetitively, and she's just getting up in their face all the time. And so Paul eventually just gets frustrated. He's like, enough! Come out of her, demon! Wow, that had a lot of reverb. I'm going to turn that off. That was shocking. <laughs> I was like, God, hello? <laughs> hmm. But when he says that, the demon comes out immediately. And this little girl set free. And you would be like, man, what a great story. What great news this is. This girl is no longer being oppressed by a demonic presence, a dark and evil spirit. But you know who's not happy about it? The slave owners. Because they're like, man, my source of income. That was my passive income. That was my side hustle, man. You took that away. And so what do they do? They form a mob and they beat Paul and Silas With sticks. Look at this in verse 23. This is where we're going to pick it up. Acts 16, verse 23. They were severely beaten, and then they were thrown into prison. The jailer was ordered to make sure they didn't escape. So the jailer put them into the inner dungeon and clamped their feet in stocks. So not great, right? Everything that's like, hey, if you follow Jesus and you proclaim his word faithfully, it's going to go well for you. Well... Unless you get beaten and thrown into prison, right? So Paul and Silas, by being faithful, by casting out a demon, are now sitting in stocks. Their feet are in those little medieval clamp type things, and they're sitting in prison. And I don't know about you, but right now I'd be feeling sorry for myself, right? Like I'd be like, 
I'd be feeling real sorry for myself in this moment. I'd be throwing a little bit of a pity party. You know how I know? Because I had a cold last week. And I was like, oh, it's so hard. God, why? And these guys have just been beaten. And let's look at their response. Around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening. Suddenly, there was a massive earthquake. The prison was shaken to its foundations. All the, doors of the prison, all the doors immediately flew open, and the chains of every prisoner fell off. The jailer woke up to see the prison doors wide open. He assumed the prisoners had escaped, so he drew his sword to kill himself. But Paul shouted to him, stop, don't kill yourself, we're all here. The jailer called for lights and ran to the dungeon and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do? to be saved. Pillar of worship, an offering of praise. Let's pray this morning as we dig into this. Father, we thank you so much for your word. God, we thank you that you're at work, that your presence is here. But Father, we pray that you would make us more aware of your presence. We pray, come Holy Spirit, speak to our minds and speak to our hearts. May my words and the things that I have to say, which are human, just fall away and be forgotten. But may your truth and your conviction and your word take root in people's hearts and flourish. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, being, of course, a good Canadian boy from a rural area of Ontario, I grew up playing hockey, all right? Now, I grew up playing hockey in Schaumburg, Ontario, and if you've never heard of it, neither have the people from the next town over, all right? It's not a big town. We had an arena with one rink. So just in case you're like, oh, we have it pretty small here. No, 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 no. We had a tractor instead of a Zamboni, all right? We had a tractor with a Zamboni attachment. Like, you know when you see a pickup truck with a pickup truck trailer on the back? Yeah, have you ever seen that on the highway? Again, this is a northern Ontario thing, maybe. But you're like, that's super, super janky. Well, that's what we had. When it was the two-minute warning to get out on the ice, the coach would open the door and go, tractor's on the ice. That's what I grew up in, all right? Small, rural, hockey town, Schaumburg. All the boys that I played with were farm boys, all right? So when they, when they hit you, you felt it, right? But we didn't have a big league, and we didn't have a lot of players, so the highest level of rep that we had was Division C rep, right? So none of us were going anywhere in hockey. By the time that I hit midget, if you didn't have five fights in a game, it wasn't a real game, all right? It was just a scrimmage, right? And scrimmages had more like 10 fights in them. But it was basically just bruiser hockey. But somehow, one of our coaches knew somebody, and I was playing rep, Division C rep, of course. And I was playing this, this game, and, uh, or I was playing in this league with these guys on this team. And our coach somehow knew somebody from New Jersey. And so we got invited to a hockey tournament in New Jersey. Now, this was a big deal because we're from a small town with a tractor for a Zamboni, all right? So we drive down to New Jersey, and we're like, buildings, this is amazing, right? We get down to this sportsplex. There's like eight arenas in this sportsplex, and we come to find out that every single team there is AAA. AAA New Jersey hockey, and we're like a Division C team. Right, so we're like in the dressing room, and we're like, oh man, we are going to get destroyed, right? Like, we're going to get destroyed by these boys out here. And so you're like taping up your pads, we're all a little bit nervous. We get out there, and within the first 30 seconds, we score. And we're like, oh, that was kind of easy. And then we realize that we can hit harder than them, and we can shoot harder than them, and we can pass better than them, and we can skate faster than them. And so for this entire round robin tournament, 
We rolled everybody over. And so we were like, we're Division C. We're not even good in Canada. We were just rubbing it in to these Americans' faces. We're like, yeah, hockey in New Jersey? Not a thing, man. Triple A? Really? Right? Like, you come up north and we'll show you what hockey's all about. But so we were just loving it. We were relishing it. So much so that during one of the games, we were up by like eight points in the second period. Our coach was like, all right, guys, we're going to all change positions, right? So we just started playing out-of-position hockey. I was a defenseman. I got moved onto the, the wing, and, like, the wingers got moved back to defense. But the thing is that when you're a winger, your job is to stand in front of the opponent's net and block the goalie and keep your stick on the ice to deflect anything that's coming at the net. So when you switch over to defense, the problem is that when you're not fully paying attention and the puck is sliding across the ice at you, your job is to lift the stick of the other guy, give him a pop, and then clear the puck. But our one winger who got moved did the most beautiful little one tap to the top right corner of the net. He puts his hands up. He's like, yes, right? He's just loving that he just scored on a triple-A team. And we're all like, no, right? He looks over at our goalie. Our goalie's like, what are you doing? And he's like, right, I'm on defense. I just scored in the wrong goal. Because he had a reflex, right? He was used to scoring. He was, his job was to put the puck in the net. And because that was his job, that's what he did. The only problem was it was the wrong net. Now, I don't know if you know this, but in a competitive sports game, the referee doesn't go, oh, that's okay. You, you probably didn't mean that. We'll give you the point. No, it doesn't happen, right? And so all of a sudden, it's 8-1, and we're like, oh, man, like, we, we still won the game. That was pretty much the only time that they scored, maybe one other time. But here's the thing. When it comes to worship, we need to check which net we're scoring. Here's what I mean by that. If we are not paying active attention to the goal that we're standing in front, the goal of what we're trying to accomplish we will score on the wrong net. Here's why. You are made to worship. You are made for it. You know, when I say that, sometimes people are like, no, I'm not a very good worshiper. <laughs> like, I'm not, I'm not like a real passionate worshiper. I'm more of a prayer warrior. I'm not really made to Like, But here's the thing. We're actually told in the book of Isaiah 43, God speaking through the prophet Isaiah says that he formed us for his glory to bring him glory. You are made to worship. And so if I were to ask you the question, what is the primary aim of worship? What's the goal of worship? Why do we worship? What would your answer be? To glorify God, to exalt God. You see, we have that answer locked and loaded. Because I think intuitively we all know that that's the objective of worship. That's what we're trying to accomplish with worship. But as much as we know that that's the aim of worship, sometimes we don't realize that we're standing in front of the wrong goal, just slamming the puck into the back of the net. And if we're not careful, we're, we actually don't even change sides. We need to evaluate whether or not we are actually accomplishing the goal of glorifying and honoring God with our worship. Because we are made to worship. And what that therefore means is if we're not worshiping God, we're going to worship something else. 
If we're not worshiping God, if we're not scoring on the goal, if we're not hitting the goal of glorifying him and bringing honor and praise and glory to God, because of the way that God formed us and put us together, we will bring honor and glory and fame to something else. We actually just can't help it. It's who we are. It's the way that he made us. It's the way that he created us. And so here's why that is important. Here's why that's an important question. Because what you worship is your God. What you worship is your God. So the question is, what are you worshiping today? What are you worshiping today? If you were to follow all of your time and your affection and your attention, maybe even your finance, if you were to follow the trail that that takes you on, where you put your time, where you put your attention, where you put your affection, and you were to look up and see what's on the throne, what are you worshiping today? Because whatever you worship, whatever you give your time, attention, affection, and money to, is your God. Little g. But the goal, what we're made for, what brings us true deep satisfaction, what God actually created us for, is not to worship false gods and false idols and small things, but to actually bring him all the glory and all the praise. So the question is, what is it for you? Is it a career? Is your career your God? Is your source of abundance in life, is it what you give your time and affection and attention to? Is it a relationship? Or maybe longing to be in a relationship? Are you spending your time and attention and affection on having a spouse one day? Is marriage your God? Like, for example, when you come into a worship service, right, and you're like, you know, I'm not really feeling this song. The band's not really doing it for me today. You know what? The lights are kind of bright in here, and that one light is just shining in my eyes, and I'm just, I'm just not feeling it today. Like, I wish that they had picked a different set. I wish that they had actually been crushing it. Kind of seems like maybe they're a little bit underprepared. Someone's singing a little bit pitchy. So you know what? I'm just going to kind of, like, stand here and observe, right? But then maybe the next week you come in, you're like, oh, man, the band is on today. We're doing Oceans? Like, what is happening in this service? I'm feeling it. And so you know what? In the next chorus, I'm going to lift my hands. I'm going to put them right up because I'm feeling it. See, the thing is, that still looks like you're worshiping God. But if you look at where your time, attention, and affection was, it was pointed at us. You know how I know? Because I've done this. This is not judgmental. This is not, you know, me being condemning. This is me standing in front of you going, yeah, I do that. I've done that. In fact, I need to guard my heart from that consistently because if I'm not careful, the number one thing that I tend to put on the throne, all of my affection, all of my attention, all of my money is spent on me. I make myself my little God. And even when I come into a worship setting like this, if I'm not careful, I'm just slamming that puck into the back of the goal going, I really felt it this morning. That really blessed me. You know, come on my soul. Don't you get shy on me. On me. Right? I'm going to lift up my voice. I got a lion inside of these lungs. Because I felt that song. I liked that song. That blessed me. You see what I'm going for here? The reality is that the actions of Christian worship do not mean that we are actually worshiping God. 
What it takes is not just an exterior presentation of worship, charismatic. What it takes is a heart condition where we're saying, God, I'm, I'm actually focused on you. I'm focused on bringing you glory. I'm focusing on bringing you fame. I'm focusing on lifting your name up. It's all about glorifying him. And I'm not, hey, here's the great news. If you're like, you know what? I actually don't know that God's on the throne. I'm not sure that I'm worshiping God. I might be worshiping myself. I might be worshiping my career. I might be worshiping one day having a spouse someday. I might be worshiping status. I might be worshiping the way that people think about me and perceive me. Here's the great news is God's like, we can deal with that. All we need to do is go, God, I'm sorry. This is yours. You take the throne. You come and sit where you belong. I'm going to give you praise, and I'm going to give you glory, and I'm going to lay down my way of doing things. The goal of what's being accomplished here is to give God glory. And that means that if we're being honest today and we realize that we're not worshiping something, if we're worshiping something other than God, that he can change us from the inside. He can change that. See, God doesn't want you to have no career. He just wants your career to glorify him. God doesn't want you to not get married necessarily. (laughs) He just wants your marriage to glorify him. God doesn't want you to not enjoy a worship service. He just wants to be glorified through it. The goal of our worship services, the goal of Christian worship is to glorify God. Louis Giglio has this incredible summary of worship that I heard when I was about 16 years old, and it's just stuck with me ever since. He says this, Christian worship is our response to God for who he is and what he's done. Can I get that one up on the screen? I think that one's in there. Our response to God for who he is and what he has done expressed in and by the things that we say and do. If we were to be like, okay, well, I understand the objective of worship is to give God glory, but how do I do that? What does that look like? This is what that looks like. Responding to God for who he is and what he has done expressed in and by the things that we say and do. So the first one there is who he is. So here's the question. Who's God? Who is God to you? Like when you think about God, what is your perception of him? How do you view him? Are you the kind of person who, like me, very often is like, well, I don't think God's really like that, even though it's in the Bible? Like, do we kind of make God in our image? Here's how you know that you've made God in your own image, when he agrees with you on everything, right? When he sees everything the way that you see it, when he would vote for the political party that you would vote for, When he would agree with the things that you agree with and disagree with the things that you disagree with. When he stands up for the people that you would stand up for but rejects the people that you would reject. Well, maybe, maybe you've made God in your own image. Maybe you're actually making God in your own image. You see, this is the foremost question that we need to answer if we're going to get worship right. The foremost danger that comes with not answering this question and not critically as Christian believers going, who is God? Really asking that question and wrestling with it and saying, God, I want you to show me who you are, is that we define God on our own terms. Like, for example, when I say, who is God, my guess is that many people in the room would say, well, God's love. Right? Like, probably popped into your head. There's there's at least a few people that the first thing that you thought is, well, God is love. I mean, it says it in the Bible. And then what we can do is we take our definition of love and we apply it to that. 
Jeremy, if I could get the first little white box in the corner there. Sorry, I realized we didn't chat about this before. It's like the first one that was in that folder. If you don't have it, that's okay. I'm getting a panic look. It's okay. It's all good. Here's what we do. We look at the character and nature of God, and we're like, well, if God is love, that means he's kind and gentle and forgiving and patient and slow to anger and accepting. So that's God. So that's who I worship. But here's the reality of who God is. God is greater than we can possibly fathom. You see, because God is still a God of wrath and justice and anger towards inequity and sin. He's omnipresent and all-powerful and all-knowing. He is gracious and he is kind and he is a savior and he is our redeemer and he is our provider. But he also is the judge who sits in the seat of mercy. And if we don't take God for who he is, then we're going to make him in our own image. So here's what we need to do. We need to actually go to scripture and recognize that God defines himself and reveals himself to us so that we can know who he is. You see, God is mysterious, and in many ways he's unfathomable, but he also makes himself knowable. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. God wants to be known by you. And he doesn't want just a few of his attributes to be known by you. He wants to, all of him to be known by you. So what we therefore need to do is approach Scripture and go to Scripture and say, God, well, who are you? If I'm going to respond to you, I need to know who you are and look at the attributes of God and understand who he is. And sometimes when we look at those attributes, it means that we're celebrating, yes, God, you're my provider. And sometimes it means that we're getting repentant before him and going, God, you're also the judge. And you don't take sin lightly. In fact, you sent your son to die for it. So thank you. It means that we respond to God for who he is. Who he is, not who we say he is. Who he defines himself to be. But in order to do that, we actually need to go after knowing who God is. You see, Paul and Silas actually had this kind of revelation of who God was. They could see what he had done, and they could see who he was as a person. And so when they worship, even though they're worshiping in chains, they're still responding to God for who he is. But can you imagine what would happen if they just had a few little attributes of God that they liked and rejected all the other ones? Like, imagine what would happen if they're like, oh, God is patient and kind, and he's just in control, and everything's just great. And then they're sitting in chains going, wait a minute, this doesn't line up with who I thought God was. You see, in that moment, they would have the potential of going, well, I'm not worshiping you. You're not worthy of my praise because you're not delivering me. But when they know who God is, they're like, oh, no, he's going to come through. He's eternal. He's the beginning and the end. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. And he's omnipresent. He is here with me right now. So I'm still going to respond to him. And they worship in chains. If you want that passionate, come hell or high water, come of sort of worship, you need to learn who God is. You need to respond to him for the revelation that you have and then go deeper into more revelation of who he is. Keep discovering how God defines himself and who he reveals himself to be in the Bible. Have a devotional life. Read the whole thing. 
Passionate worship and steadfast worship requires a revelation of God because it's about who God is and what he's done. So what has God done? What's God done in your life? What's God done in the life of our church? What's God done historically? You see, when we know the works of God, it draws us into response. But if we don't take time to look at the works of God, the works of his hands, as the psalmist puts it, if we don't consider what God has done, then we're going to have a very limited response to who he is and what he's done. In order to actually respond to God for what he has done, we need to be the kind of people who go deeper. Corporately, what this means, or historically what this means, is that you look at the Bible, you actually see what he's done throughout all of history. Maybe you look at church history, you read about the lives of the saints. You want to hear some incredible things that God has done? Go read on histories of revivals. The Welsh revival, the Hebridean revival. Go read the stories that come out of that. Learn what God has done. Corporately, it means stories within the church, both in our church and locally, in the global church as well. The stories coming out of the church in Iran right now are unbelievable. People that are gathering by the thousands, people that are having prophetic dreams from Jesus and turning from Islam to Christ just because they woke up in the morning and went, this is true. God is at work in the church. He is at work in the church. He's at work in our church, and he's at work in the church. This is why we get together in Nova Groups. Right now we're gathering around tables. It's a time for us to share our testimony with each other. I wasn't going to share this, but this week, this was the last week that I was working one of my jobs in Ontario, a significant source of provision for the past five years, and it's gone. Now, at the same time, my guitar has been giving me a lot of trouble. My battery fell out last week. I was, like, trying to plug it in the entire time. And so an amazing couple from our church dropped by yesterday and said, God just told us to get you a new guitar and gave me a new guitar. And that story's not about me. That story's about someone in our church being generous and obedient to what God's doing. We need to have testimonies of what God is up to. That's just yesterday. And then we respond. And then personally, what's God doing in your life? And if you don't feel like God's doing much in your life, we basically, as all Christians, have at least one thing that Jesus has done in our life, and that's called the cross. And if we truly understood the cross, I'm not sure that we would ever get up from worship. You see, because sometimes we think that, like, we were down here, and then Jesus was like, here, I'll just, I'll just help you up. And you're like, oh, okay, and he just gave us a little helping hand. But the reality is that it's like our sin was insurmountable. Our sin was something that we could not overcome. Our sin was so deep and we were so buried by it that if we were to atone for it, we would never make it up. We were too far in debt to ever pay it back and Jesus came and said, well, then I'll take care of it. I mean, if that doesn't cause a response in you, if that doesn't cause you to go, God, thank you, then maybe you just don't fully understand what the cross is. And then there's the empty grave. See, not only did Jesus die on the cross to take care of our sin that separated us from God so that now we can be in relationship from us with him, but also the grave is empty. He didn't stay dead. He took back the power of sin and death so that you no longer need to live under the threat of death all your life. You can have life eternal in him. I mean, that's what we're responding to at least. But you're telling me God hasn't done anything else? We need to take a look at our lives and see what God has done. 
You see, this is where Paul and Silas are responding from in this verse. You see, Paul and Silas have this kind of revelation of what God had done. Paul, in particular, had an encounter with the risen Jesus where he realized the claims of Christians were true, in which Jesus was God, that sin was dead, that death was defeated, that the Old Testament had been fulfilled, and it left him blind. He had to go and be prayed for to get his sight back, and then he starts doing ministry where he sees demonic power flee. He sees healings and deliverance. He sees more than even Jewish people come to faith. He sees Gentiles come to faith faith, filled with the Holy Spirit, seeing miracles of their own. He's seeing God do some stuff. And he responds from there. He responds from there. And what that leads to is a response expressed by what we say and do. And if I get the team come back up. Come on back, team. Now, the basis of worship is visible in Scripture. And, and, and this response, just to be clear, our response is not meant to be 20 minutes on a Sunday. It's not meant to just be the singing portion of our service. Our response is supposed to be a whole life, <laughs> excuse me, all of us response to who God is and what he's done. What that means is that our career, the way that we are at work, the way that we are as a sibling, a son or a daughter, a grandson or a granddaughter, the way that we are as a grandparent, a father and mother, all of that is supposed to be worship to God. It's all supposed to bring him glory. It's all supposed to bring him praise. But I want to just spend the few minutes that I have left focusing not just on one of the personal response, but our response as a church together. What does that response look like on a Sunday morning congregationally? And there are some things that we do here at Nova to bring, to bring God glory, but I just want to explain the heart behind them. So that we're not just having like a mimetic response where you see someone raise your hands, so you raise your hands because that seems like the thing to do. And not just the kind of response where you see everyone singing along to the karaoke on the screen, so you sing along to the karaoke on the screen. It's not just so you close your eyes because you're feeling uncomfortable and you're like, oh gosh, oh gosh, another song. What I want to do is I actually want to just talk about two things that we do to respond. The first thing is this, we respond with our voices. You see, one of the reasons that we sing songs is because it's clearly visible throughout the Bible. And it's given as clear instruction to the church. Check this out, Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Psalm 101-2, Make a joyful noise to the Lord. All the earth, serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Psalm 95, 1-2, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Ephesians 5, 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Psalm 147, 1, praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to God, for it is pleasant and a song of praise is fitting. James 5.13, is any one of you suffering? Let him pray. Is any one of you cheerful? Let him sing praise. I mean, that's Andrew Yaden. You ever seen that guy? He's just singing. He's cheery all the time. The instruction here is that when you're happy, you should be singing praise to God. And when we come into this place looking at who God is and what he's done, we should be coming in going, 
God, you're good. Let's sing a song. Let's look to the sun. Let's set our eyes on a Savior. This is our response to lift our voice, to lift our songs, and the power of what's happening when we are singing together in one place with one accord, when we are singing the same words, we are in that moment in unity. We're in unity. You know, social media has really exposed how not unified we are because I'm willing to bet there's people in this church that you sat further away from because of something you saw online. I can't believe they vote for that person. I can't believe they think that about that, that social issue. I can't. But when we come in here, when we lift our voices, we are actually saying, regardless of our differences, we look to the sun. We set our eyes on the Savior, the goodness of love. We look to you, Jesus. We're lifting our voices in unity. And that's the same atmosphere in Acts 2-1 when the Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost. It says they were all together in one accord, unified. And what we're believing for is that when we come together in unity, we leave behind our petty differences and our squabbling and say, but we're united in Christ. So let's sing about it. Let's get on the same page, brother or sister in Christ. Let's be one together. Let's be unified. And let's be believing for the Spirit of God to fall on us and rest on us. And the last thing is this. We respond with our bodies. There's a couple verses here. I'm not going to read them all just for the sake of time. Although I would love firing through them again. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. To you, O Lord, I call my rock. Be not deaf to me. Lest you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear my voice of pleas for mercy when I cry to you, help. When I lift my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. Every day I call upon you, O Lord, I spread out my hands to you. I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. Lift up my hands in the holy place and bless the Lord. O Lord, I call upon you. Hasten to me. Give me, give ear to my voice when I call you. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. I will stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and I spread out my hands before the Lord God. In all of these situations, people are crying out to God with their bodies. With their bodies. Now, why are they doing that? Why are they actually doing that? Why are they lifting their hands? What's the significance of that? We talked about this a little bit in the offering, that your treasure has the ability to locate your heart. But did you know that your body has the ability to locate your mind? Your body has the ability to locate your mind as well. See, we're not Gnostics. Gnostics believe that the body doesn't matter, that it's just matter. The only thing that matters is the spirit. But we actually believe in a holistic theology that God created our spirit and our body. And therefore, our body is meant to be part of our worship experience to God. As we worship in spirit and in truth. As Paul puts it in Romans 12, we lay down our bodies as living sacrifice. Our bodies are included in our worship to God. Amy Cuddy is a professor at Harvard Business School. 
And she did a study on the power of posture to change his mind. And in this study, what was found was that holding a victorious posture, celebrating for even just 20 seconds, changed the cortisol levels, which regulate anxiety, and the testosterone levels, which give confidence in the people that were being studied. If someone stood with their hands raised in a position of victory, it literally physiologically changed what was happening in their brain. And they were more confident and less anxious for their business presentation. But in this study, they also did something where they, they got people to slump, to slouch, to take on a posture that was downcast. And it elevated the level of cortisol, which causes anxiety in their bodies and lowered the level of testosterone, which gives confidence. So those people were more anxious and less confident going into the presentation. Now, what does that mean for us? What we can see within this study is your posture changes your mind. God knows this because he knit you together. So the command to lift your hands, to take on a posture of victory, to take on a posture of reaching out for a father who loves us in heaven and saying, help me, to take on a posture of surrender to say, I give up, I give in, I want you, I don't want my own way. God knows that that is literally changing us. So when we come into this place, I don't like raising my hands. Let's talk about scripture. Let's talk about the fact that God says, do it. Because at the end of the day, let's go back to the original question. Why do we worship? To give God glory. Church, with all the love in my heart, it's not about you. When we come into this place, we love that you feel encouraged and edified. But our number one priority is glorifying God. And if you don't feel like it, I want to remind you of Paul and Silas. They've just been beaten. They're bleeding. They're bruised. They're sore. They're sitting there with their feet in stocks. And we think that they're just like, oh, bless the Lord. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. So good. But chances are that they were sitting there and they were like, He's good. He's good. God, I, I worship you. I bless you. God, you can get us out of this. And even if you don't, you're worthy of, of praise. So God, we give you praise. We give you honor. We give you glory. Hey, you want to sing a song? You, you don't make room? Let's do that. <laughs> right? And instead of giving into their circumstance, they went, circumstance, you're not bigger than God. So I'm going to lift my hands. I'm going to pray. I'm going to worship. I'm going to sing. I'm going to engage my body. And I'm going to respond to you to give you glory for who you are and what you've done, regardless of what I'm going through, because it's about you. It's not about me. And do you know what God does? He inhabits the praise of his people and he sets them free. You see, our motivation is not having a, an ethereal encounter where we get all warm and fuzzy. But for whatever reason, because God loves us, 
When we glorify him truly, when we score on the right net, when we take the puck and we put it in the back, he shows up to meet with us. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to stand to our feet. We're going to worship our God. And I want to encourage you, lift your voice. Respond with your body. Lift your hands. Let's engage ourselves. And if you don't feel like it, if you're like, well, it's not really my week, I want to encourage you, change your mind by changing your posture. Be a a responsive person to the example in Scripture and say, God, it's not about me. It's about you anyway. So come on, let's sing. Let's worship.
for the finished work on the cross today, we have something to celebrate. For the finished work on the cross, we have something to lift our hands. We have breath in our lungs. We have life in our bones. We will praise the Lord. Amen? Come on. Let us stand. Let's lift our hands. If you're like, I'm not sure about that, let's align our bodies with what God is doing. With the victory of the cross. Can we do that today, church? For the victory of the cross. Come on. We're going to stand in surrender. We are going to stand to receive his goodness and his presence and his faithfulness in victory of the cross. It is for freedom that he set us free. We will not go back into bondage. We will not take on that yoke, those chains again. We are living our lives in the victory of the cross. Amen.
G gods get on the throne. We want you on the throne. God, we want you to be the goal and the object of our worship. So God, we pray that you be glorified, that you be honored. Come on, can we just sing that, just the voices again, just one time, just I make room. You know, church, this is a this was a challenging word this morning, and I'm aware of that. It may even be uncomfortable. It may make you feel like I disagree. And to be honest with you, I'd love to chat if you do. I'd love to have a conversation, particularly if you're in the room this morning. And when I was talking about the G- Jesus dying on the cross and raising from the grave, you're like, I've never never even really heard of that. At least I've never understood it. I think I get sin. I think I get the weight of sin. That's probably why I'm here. I'm looking for answers. Well, I got good news. If that's you this morning, if you're like, I'm done with my sin, it's it's tearing me down, it's bringing me down, I want something to take it away, to deal with it. Maybe you don't even call it sin. Maybe you just call it bad choices and you're just tired of bad choices. And you're here because you're looking for answers. I'm here to tell you, I can save you a lot of time looking around. His name is Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God and God himself. And seeing us struggling in our sin, unable to fulfill the law, unable to follow a bunch of rules, unable to do it on our own, he said, I'm coming down there for you. And Jesus lived a life where he showed us the way to live that leads to abundant life. But recognizing that we couldn't do it on our own, he said, and now I'm going to go give you the power to do it. And by dying on the cross, any sin that you've ever done, anything you've ever done wrong, whether it was yesterday, whether it's going to happen tonight, whether it's going to happen next week, whether it happened 10 years ago, it doesn't matter because it's dealt with when you come to the cross and say, Jesus, forgive me of my sin. That's what we need to do. We come to him. We say, Jesus, forgive me of my sin. And the beautiful thing is that he doesn't want us just wandering around, trying to stumble around, figure out this life on our own. He says, I actually have a way for you to live. There are commandments. There are ways to live. There are things that you need to stop doing and things you need to start doing. And he says, but I'm going to help you do that. I'm going to come and live on the inside of you through my Holy Spirit. And when that happens, you're going to be able to live this new abundant life. And that's called lordship by saying, I don't want to be on the throne anymore. I tried that and it's not working. I want you on the throne. That's what that's saying is I am submitted to your authority. Another way to say that is to become a Christian. That's what it really means to say you are Lord of my life. And I just want to tell you, if you've never actually said, Jesus, you are Lord of my life, then you're not really a Christian. You may follow Christian rules. You may follow Christian culture. But what it means to become a Christian is to say, I'm turning over ownership to you to live your way, to step into your forgiveness and to step into the freedom from death that you offer me. 
And so with every head bowed and every eye closed, if today you want to do that, you want to become a Christian, you want to actually make a decision to follow Jesus and make him the Lord of your life, you want freedom from the sin, you want to stop living your way, you want to be empowered by him to live a new way, an abundant life, would you just slip your hand up high enough and long enough for me to see it? Yeah, I see that hand. 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 Hands going up all over the place. Hands going up all over the place. Come on. That's amazing. Well, hey, here's what I'd love you to do. We're going to pray a prayer in a second. I'm going to pray for you. But here's what I would love for you to do. It's pretty simple. What it means to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior is to say, Jesus, I ask you to forgive me of my sin. I have sinned. I've fallen short. I ask you to give me new life. And I ask you to be the Lord of my life. So I'm going to pray for you. But if you raise your hand, as I pray, would you pray that as well? Father God, I thank you for these people who lifted their hands. God, I thank you that in this moment they're saying, I want you to be Lord of my life. I'm done living my way. I'm done being on the throne. I'm done falling into sin. I'm done making bad decisions. I need something more. And Father, I thank you that you are a God of forgiveness, that you are the God who defines what love is because you not only demand perfection, but you fulfilled perfection on the cross. Father, I thank you that in your cross and by your blood, we are made perfect. We are made perfect in your sight. So, Father, I pray for these brothers and sisters who have lifted their hand and want you to be their Lord and Savior. Father, I ask that you would save them now. God, that you would wash them clean. God, that you would help them, empower them, fill them with your Holy Spirit to not make these bad decisions anymore, to follow the way of Jesus, to live a new kind of life, to be free from the old way and step into the new way, and ultimately to live a life of worship to you. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Come on, can we give it up for these people who raised their hands this morning? Hey, we're done. We're wrapped up this morning. Here's what I would love to say before you leave. If you raised your hand to accept Jesus this morning, I'm going to stand right up here at the front. I'd love to talk with you about that decision and pray with you. You can also grab a Bible at Guest Central to be able to read the Bible. There's a note, little, little, what's it called? Notebook? Bookmark? Bookmark bookmark in there that will help you read the Bible. There's a QR code you can scan. Um, and again, I just want to say this. Turn to your neighbor, look him dead in the eyes, and say this, we're not here next week. We're not here next week. We love you. We'll see you at Rock Church, 3 p.m. next week. Be blessed, church. Be blessed. Have a great Sunday. Amen.